Asian hate. In this episode of Inspire, we pose the question, what will it take at long last to bring down hate in the United States, a country which in premise was built upon justice and liberty? It's a question being asked by many people these last few weeks in university classes and on social media, both at Ohio State University and around the country, and at rallies like this one, recently on the university's Oval. California to see their cars were on fire and they were the only two Asians living in that neighborhood. Earlier this week a 58 year old Chinese woman was robbed when sitting in her car after dropping her husband off for cancer treatment in San Francisco, California. And then there are the eight lost to the Atlanta shooting, six of whom were Asian women, many who are single parent immigrant mothers the first in their family to work in the U.S. In a year when anti-Asian hate has been ramped up and political rhetoric has fanned flames during the coronavirus, there are many stories of violence. A Thai American woman stopped at a traffic light outside of Cleveland was told by a man in a pickup truck to get out of my country and I'll kill you. A two-year-old, a six-year-old and their family member were stabbed in a grocery store in Midland, Texas. These incidents were reported to police. Most aren't. If you're wondering whether Ohio State students have suffered abuse and discrimination, the answer is yes. This is the Ohio State University Inspire podcast, a production of the College of Education and Human Ecology. I'm Robin Chenoweth. Carol Del Grasso is our audio engineer. Anti-Asian hate, like so many aspects of racism, has interwoven layers. Here we attempt to peel apart some of those to get a better understanding of racism against communities of Asian descent. For our purposes, we will use the term APIDA, Asian, Pacific Islander, and Desi Americans. Desi refers broadly to South Asians, including people of Indian descent. I remember the evening that Trump was inaugurated in 2016. This is Sui Yang Ashley Yong, who goes by Ashley. She graduates this spring with a master's degree in higher education and student affairs and works in Ohio State's Multicultural Center. I was walking to the residence hall that I was an RA at, and a few white men, college-age men in a car, as I was crossing the street, started um, making racial noises, like racial slurs um, at me. And I remember feeling so in shock. And I don't know what came over me, but I turned myself around and I poked my head in their window and I said, why did you just say that? And these guys looked at me like they were so shocked that I would ever dare to say something to them, that I would ever dare to confront them about the things that they had said. Yang was born in the United States. Hachia Lin, a doctoral student in STEM education originally from Taiwan, has been here eight years. Recently, he was shopping at a department store in Columbus. As he stood among the displays of men's clothing, he heard an angry voice. I heard a guy talking loudly, and what he says is, why are there Asians everywhere in the States? And I was kind of surprised when I heard that. 
I was like thinking, I'm not talking to anyone. Why, why did someone near me say that? Lin raised his head to see a white man looking at him. He did what anyone would do. He looked around to see if the man was talking to someone else. No one else was around. I would never forget the words he said because I can still remember the threatening tone in, in his words. So I, I walk away from him uh, because I, I, I'm not sure will he keep saying something bad or maybe do something physical to me. The March shootings of six Asian women in Atlanta, not long after, were a gut punch to students like Lin and Yang. Lin used to encourage his wife to take walks around their neighborhood. Now, he asks her to walk only when he can go with her. And with good reason. More than two-thirds of the 3,800 attacks on Asians and Asian Americans this year have been directed at women. Ashley Yong was interviewing for a job as a violence prevention coordinator the day of the shootings. The irony was not lost on her. That day, she compartmentalized her emotions. But the next, police described the killer as having had, quote, a bad day. That is when it really hit me hard, because this is not the first and it won't be the last time that folks will be making excuses for people with dominant identities, specifically white men, that perpetrate acts of violence. And to see that this person is already immediately kind of being taken in in a way that other folks who perpetrate violence aren't, or excuses are being made for him, was really difficult. I personally identify as a survivor of relationship and sexual violence, and it was really difficult to read about this idea that he had a sex addiction, right? And he wanted to eliminate any um, temptations to that sexual addiction because there is a really, really long history of um, the sexualization of Asian women in this country. And again, as a survivor myself, that was extremely hard to hear. I was so shocked at how people were not recognizing the intersection between sexual violence and this form of racism. And therein lies another one of those layers. Theodore Chow, associate professor of STEM education, spoke in late March at a rally outside the Ohio State House. He said that the women in his family and in the Opita community have long been dealing with racist behavior, specifically from white men. Treating them like commodities sexualizing them, exploiting them, treating them like goods that can be bought, sold, demeaned, fetishized, dehumanized, and murdered like animals. These stories they've told us again and again are true. These stories that they've lived are true. Because we've been gaslighted our whole lives to act as if this violence against our, our, our woman is not real. We've been told that these are just small incidences. We've been told that because of Asian American success, of test scores, of getting into the right colleges, of being able to buy houses in suburban areas that have been redlined against our black and brown family, that somehow this defines success and we should ignore all the other ways our sisters, our mothers, and our daughters have been violently victimized and sexualized. After the Atlanta shootings, Jesse Lee, a master's student in higher education and student affairs, who is Korean-American and grew up in a white community, found herself again trying to explain to white friends the intersection of misogyny and racism. Seeing Asian women as exotic or seeing Asian women as submissive um, 
or fetishizing Asian women in general. All of these things are things that I've personally experienced in my dating life or in my relationship with my friends growing up, or just like, you know, trying to be a teenager in a white community. Like my Asian features were talked about just in a conversation, like it was no big deal. So that was like bring, I think being brought to light a lot. And I was like, I, this is something that I've had to deal with for a while now. And I wasn't ready to like really dive into it with people who are only now starting to ask questions about it. Honestly, like I was just frustrated. I was like, I've told you all this before and you've never made a big deal. You've been like, oh, but they like you. And only now are you coming to me with it being an issue? It's a tragic commentary on American life that it takes someone dying before people realize that others are hurting and vulnerable. But the roots of anti-Asian bias go back 150 years when American attitudes toward Asian, Pacific Islander, and Dacia Americans were set into place. It's time we take stock of those notions, says Mark Guerrero, associate professor of higher education and student affairs. A Filipino-American, he studies how having multiple racial identities affects students. The history of Asian Americans or Asians in what we now know as the U.S. uh, is often not known or not taught. I often tell people Filipinos were in this country in the 1500s. Nobody knows that. Most Americans are fuzzy on the details of the Chinese Exclusion Act, if they know about it at all. In 1882, the law barred Chinese laborers who performed the backbreaking work of building the American West, working on railroads and in factories and gold mines. That law and quotas barred most Chinese entry into the United States until the mid-1960s. Before that, there was the Page Act. That was the first restrictive immigration law. It was tailored specifically to East Asian women, specifically Chinese women. The 1875 Act, sponsored by Horace Page of California, was meant to, quote, end the danger of cheap Chinese labor and immoral Chinese women, end quote. But only the ban on East Asian women, effectively all East Asian women, was heavily enforced. Scholars have been able to show it really was to prevent the procreation of uh, Chinese people in the U.S. So they wanted men for their labor, cheap labor, but they didn't want the women to come because they didn't want them to, to expand the population. They kept the women out. And they tried to use stereotypes about the sexual promiscuity or the women being prostitutes to sort of rationalize why they were being kept out or why they were being excluded. The law set a dangerous tone that still exists today. Those notions were compounded after multiple wars in Southeast Asia, East Asia, and the Pacific, where extreme poverty and sometimes militaries forced women into the sex trade. Some complied to keep from being killed or to keep from starving. There's just a continued line or thread of that uh, stereotype um, that has resulted and, and been perpetuated. When we think about the violence in Atlanta and the targeting of Asian women, that history is so, it's so ingrained in who we are, in our laws, in our past, in the immigration, that we have to think about it sort of collectively. And and that's where intersectionality kind of comes in. It's not just about being Asian or a woman. It's about being both. Peeling back another layer of anti-Asian bias, since the civil rights era, 
calling out the success of some Asian Americans became an easy way for some white Americans to avoid addressing racism. If APETA groups were discriminated against and still succeeded, some said, why couldn't black Americans do the same? But that narrative ignores the fact that black Americans have historically been denied access to education opportunities, the right to own land, and to receive bank loans, says Theodore Chow. You don't want to admit that this American dream myth is false. Because you, you look at these histories of formerly enslaved and colonized people and how they have not achieved an American dream besides being in North America for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it, go, it runs completely counter to the idea that if you work hard, if you assimilate, that you'll be successful. And that's a tension point. Mark Guerrero. That is a manifestation of what we call the model minority myth that is a tool to perpetuate white normativity. It was created in the 1960s as civil rights was, uh, you know, uh, African-Americans were fighting for civil rights um, and were loud, right, and were fighting. And so there were reporters and researchers looking at Japanese and Chinese Americans and saying, hey, like, they're doing really well. Uh, why can't you be like them, right? Or why can't you just uh, be quiet and try to assimilate and blend in? Uh, so that's where that model minority sort of comes from. And so it has a history of pitting groups against each other. Jessie Lee sees those tensions play out in her family when she tries to bring up topics like racial oppression and her involvement in the Black Lives Matter movement. I think it's like a lot of this model minority myth thinking that's been really pervasive within our own community. We're trying our best. We're contributing to society. We just need to stop the Asian hate. This is like not at all related to like white supremacy. It's just been, yeah, a hard conversation to have um, about the complexities of it all, which I think is, is hard for anybody to have conversations about. But there's definitely some generational differences, though, I think. For sure. For sure. And I think like, for the most part, a lot of people are wanting to kind of keep their heads down, not wanting to make a ruckus. Um, and definitely I see that within the older generation, especially with the members of my own family. And younger Asian Americans are finding that keeping their heads down doesn't go far if people are physically abusing or verbally harassing you or your grandparents on the street. And so APETA students are coming together and they're speaking up. Something that I definitely want to stop and something that's definitely been the most disheartening is just seeing all the violence that's been going on uh especially towards older like elderly people aaron wang is graduating with a degree in exercise science this spring and headed to emory university for graduate school growing up in a majority white town i did face a lot of like slurs and racial comments uh so coming into osu i was a little bit more hypersensitive to these things uh I had faced it a lot, but it was something that kind of was a pet peeve of mine. Uh, any any sort of like small comments or aggressions, I, I really put in effort to try to go against the stigma that we won't cause conflict if needed and we won't speak up for ourselves, um, which has been a point that I, I've always tried to resonate with my friends and my community. He recalls going off campus with friends to get slushies after playing basketball. A group of three white males, students, walked into the store. I was in a group of like, I think five or six Asian men, uh, 
just minding our own business, kind of talking outside of the UDF. And as they walked in, they like, oh, what is this? Like, is this Chinatown or something? That really set off, I think, a lot of my friends as well as myself. I, I don't know why they thought that was like an okay thing to do, or maybe they didn't really expect us to speak up because once we did, uh, they kind of just ignored us and, and walked away. But I think instances like those are definitely more prevalent than uh, people think just because Asian Americans don't really speak about these instances until recently, which I think is, is a really good step forward. These APITA students say that first and foremost, the violence has to stop. But for that to happen, people need to stop looking at Asian and Pacific Islander Americans as the perpetual foreigner. I want to acknowledge that I do have certain privileges as an Asian American in this country based on how we are perceived by folks with dominant identities. Yet at the same time, it is really isolating to feel like you are constantly being looked at as an other. When I travel out to smaller towns in Ohio and people stare a little bit longer than at me than they would at my friends, for example. It's honestly something that I have come to accept because it's a survival mechanism. If I were constantly telling people, it's not okay to, to look at me like that, or it's not okay to constantly treat me like an other, I mean, racial battle fatigue is so real. And I truly don't have the energy on a day-to-day -day basis to constantly be correcting others. But I know that folks with other racialized, minoritized identities experience that as well. Marginalizing groups of people, labeling them as the other, is not exclusive to the United States. Think about the Dalits, once crassly called the untouchables in India, or the Uyghurs in China. As white Americans, we tend to see these examples while not recognizing our own racial castes that elevate whiteness. And that isn't exclusive to white folks either. It's human nature, but it can be overcome, says PhD student Ho Chia Lin. Sometimes I'm also looking back on my, my own context, like, is there supremacy in other ethnic groups? And I, I would say yes. In Taiwan, where most of the people, their ethnicity is Han. They are dominant uh, group in, in the society. And, and sometimes we we don't really understand the struggles the minority group will have. And some, some people will uh, you know, associate them with less educated people. You're right. Wherever people are, there is always a dominant group. Um, do, do you think you were as aware of that before you came to the United States as you are now? I, I was not paying attention to this issue. But after I learned about it, I, I kind of... Uh, reflect on my own experiences and then try to uh, see that, oh, if I belong to the dominant group, then actually we are having some advantages that those minority didn't have. I taught at a school before, and in my class, there are children from families. Maybe their mother is originally from countries like Vietnam or uh, Thailand. And these children, they are not very articulate in, in terms of speaking Chinese. We didn't do a good job to support their language literacy. And also, we, we didn't know what kind of support they really need. So this reflection only occurs when I come to the States and to learn about the equity and social justice issues. I can finally understand that there are so many issues that are implicit and we, we just uh, did not notice it. A change in perspective 
can make us see the humanity in people different from ourselves. College is a great place to start. As more APETA students buck model minority stereotypes, some friction might occur, says Ashley Young. We have students that are coming to experience Ohio State for the first time as the most diverse place they've ever been, and we have students experiencing Ohio State as the least diverse place they've ever been. So when you bring together people who are international students from Hong Kong and someone from a really rural area of Ohio, there's going to be potentially some clashes when it comes to understanding each other's life experiences. College is this kind of petri dish to see different um, organisms come together and and interact in a really unique way that we might not see um, elsewhere. What do APETA students need from us? Mostly, they need us to listen. They're less worried about themselves and more worried about their parents and grandparents. They say they don't want their struggles to diminish those of fellow Black students, with whom they stand in solidarity, says Ashley Young. At the same time, we can also hold space for our our IPEDA IPEDA folks and um, the social justice within our community as well. There's this collective grieving and there's this collective trauma among people of color right now, not just with the pandemic, but also with racial injustice in recognizing that white supremacy is so pervasive and it truly cannot be eradicated um, without us caring for each other, specifically within minoritized communities. What can we do? And the university, what control do we have uh, depending on where their family members might be? How can we support them? And these are big questions. I don't have the answers to them, except that we're hoping to be able to create a new culture, a new world by producing educated graduates that have a a stronger understanding of who Asian Americans and Pacific Islander and Desi Americans are, uh, what the struggles are, what the histories are, different cultural differences. That is our hope that we can lead to that. And it's also maybe educating the PETA students themselves to have a stronger sense of identity and pride in who they are. Back up, back up, we want freedom, freedom.